Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's October 25th, 1940, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. Black soldiers have served in every conflict in American history since the Revolutionary War. But for much of that time, the military was racially segregated and the head honchos ordering them around, the generals, were always white. Until today in history in 1940, when Benjamin Oliver Davis Sr. became the first African-American general in the US Army. At the time, Davis was a colonel and close to the mandatory retirement age of 64. Although, we'll get into this, he was probably actually only 61. And so he wasn't the natural candidate. There was pressure to pick someone younger who had a bit more of a military career behind them. But the US Army was under a lot of pressure to hire some more black officers to encourage black recruits. At this point, it was very obvious that the US was likely to enter World War II. And there was kind of an understanding that you weren't going to get millions of black men signing up in droves if they thought all of the officers over them were going to be white. So President Roosevelt personally intervened in October 1940. He overrode the age objection and recommended Davis for promotion to Brigadier General. Yes, so the reason for the uncertainty about his age is that Davis claimed that he was born in Washington, D.C. in 1877, though he likely forged his birth date to sign up for the army in 1898. He'd actually been born to uh, Louis P. H. and Henrietta Davis, whose parents were enslaved, and life for him throughout his youth was obviously pretty rough due to the discrimination that he faced as a young black man. He attended uh, M Street High School in Washington, and then he first uh, learnt about the army during his time in the cadet program at school. And during his senior year, he attended classes at the historically black Howard University, but instead he chose to enlist in the army then. Yeah, I mean, the army and service obviously kind of cut deep, really, through his veins. I mean, just that very fact that he probably lied about his age to enlist in the army in the first place Mm. so that he didn't have to have the permission of his parents shows you this is someone who was a lifetime careerist at the military. He served in the Spanish-American War. He became a sergeant in Manila, uh, second lieutenant of cavalry in the regular army in 1901. But He never got to be a senior officer at the time you'd expect him to because he was black. During World War I, they didn't want him controlling uh, troops that were white. Yeah, and I think he knew he should have been promoted earlier, and that gave him this sort of sense of trying to fight for the right to fight, you know, the the opportunity for men, not not just for black men to fight in racially segregated units, to, but to be properly integrated within the military as a whole. 
Yeah, I mean, he'd started at the very bottom of the army. You know, he joined the All Black Ninth Cavalry as private. You know, he was one of the Buffalo soldiers stationed in the, during the Indian Wars. And he had the incredible good luck of being in a unit that was officered by Lieutenant Charles Young, who was the only black officer in the entire U.S. Army at the time. He was mm. the third African-American to graduate from West Point. And when he, God, he'd had such a rough time as well, Charles Young. When he was at West Point, nobody would speak to him. Literally no one would speak to him the entire, I think it was the first two years he was there he would speak to the German servants in German he was a really talented linguist just to have human interaction so you can imagine how excited he was when Davis showed up and showed that he had that officer potential too so within a couple of years Young had mentored Davis to the point where he was able to pass the rigorous physical and academic exams and was commissioned as a second lieutenant the second black officer in the army you know Young finally had a peer it's that classic thing of if you don't see it, you can't be it, isn't it? I mean, that time station with Lieutenant Young was obviously hugely influential on Davis, but also, just to fast forward a bit, I mean, it's not as if after Davis became a general, suddenly there were a load of black generals. The next black general in the US Army was his son, wow. <laughs> Benjamin Oliver Davis Jr. Um, and, you know, that again is a case of him obviously having been mentored and hothoused by his father. You couldn't just walk into a senior position as an African-American and things weren't much more straightforward for him. He wanted to be a pilot, but there wasn't a black flying unit then, even after the Second World War, so he couldn't. And he was shunned at the military academy by the white soldiers. I mean, the the story of how African-Americans came to be accepted into the US military kind of goes alongside the story that America was going through as a whole. So, you know, at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, Andrew Jackson promised free black men who joined him equivalent pay to their white counterparts and enslaved men were promised freedom. And around 900 freemen and slaves then fought at the Battle of New Orleans, but unfortunately their sacrifice went entirely unrewarded. And when the fighting ended, Jackson just reneged on his promise and sent enslaved black men back to their masters. And there were so many similar sort of step forward, step back moments throughout the history of the uh, of the military. Yeah, and huge numbers of African-Americans served in the American Civil War. And that was when they first started to have non-commissioned black officers, so corporals and sergeants. But the issues with having commissioned black officers was that, you know, the army, although regiments were segregated, obviously ranks were the same. Mm. So theoretically, a black captain would be the superior of a white sergeant. And the army were just desperate to make sure that they those things never happened, that those two people could never possibly come into contact. <laughs> I mean, it was easy enough to do because there were only a handful of black officers. But basically what happened with Davis was that he was incredibly competent. He was especially well known for being a real stickler for drill regulations. You know, he knew the books inside and out, but they kept having to find him basically, you know, black jobs. They were like, you know, you can't be in anywhere in a frontline command or in a prestigious position where you would actually be around white inferiors. Yeah. Where you you're issuing be- commands to white soldiers. Yeah, I mean, it was believed that this would cause mass unrest, could even lead to mutiny. So he taught at African-American universities. He was a military attaché to Liberia. But it did mean, you know, regardless of whether or not he was being used as a political pawn, because that was the other criticism, was that just before the 1940 presidential election, this was a political move by the White House to influence what was then called the Negro vote in New York and Illinois. You'd be able to say on the campaign trail, look, we've just elected a Negro as a general, you should vote for us. Even if that was the case, um, the bottom line is that liaison was desperately needed. You know, I mean, yeah, you could say he was being shoved off on roles where, you know, in World War II, there was a time where he was sort of sent around Europe inspecting soldiers um, to judge their morale. 
But that meant talking to African-American infantry about their issues in a way that other generals had never done. And the, the, the sort of unspoken thing underlying it all, it seems to me, is the huge question of why am I fighting fascism when there's such racism back home? Mm. And, you know, they were able to say, well, look, we've got a black general talking to these soldiers. We're, we're trying to change as well. But I think also simultaneously the fact that African-American units were so distinguishing themselves in combat during World War II really opened the question about how black people were being treated generally. And there was this famous moment in October 1944 when an all-black tank battalion uh, reached France. It was called the Red Tails, and they were there to serve under uh, General George S. Patton himself. And he famously told them that he didn't care what color they were as long as they were here to kill Germans. And I think that was increasingly the view that, you know, as long as they're on our team, we should treat them increasingly as if they're on our team. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons that Davis maybe isn't as well remembered as he should be is that he did have kind of a conflicting attitude towards race. His primary loyalty was really to the army. That was his Mm. entire identity was being a soldier. And during World War II, he wrote... Overmuch emphasis is being placed on colour in our army. And I think he meant it in both senses. You know, he was anti-prejudice, but he also didn't want to be seen as a black general or someone who only lobbied on racial issues. And you can see that really in his post-war career as well. You know, he retired in 1948, just before Harry Truman issued the order that would integrate the military. But then, you know, through the civil rights movement, he didn't get involved in marches or protests. You know, while people were you know marching on Selma, he was involved in the American Battle Monuments Commission. You know, he was going around... In inspecting and choosing sites for new military monuments. That was really his passion. Um, In 1948, President Truman issued Executive Order 9981, uh, which called for equality of treatment of the armed forces. In other words, sanctioned segregation within the army was no longer allowed. But it actually took until the Korean War in October 1951 when the all-black 24th Infantry Regiment, which had served during the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the beginning of the Korean War, was disbanded. And it was only when that happened that uh, the last lingering formal practice of segregation in the army had been disbanded. So Davis eventually died of leukemia in 1970 and ended up being honoured with a stamp that went into circulation. Notably not a statue, but a stamp. And I mean, looking back through some of the Buffalo soldiers, I mean, this is something we should do in a future episode, definitely. But uh, mm. my favourite is probably 1868, when Kathy Williams became the first black female Buffalo soldier by disguising herself as a man. Wow. I, I didn't realise we were going to end by playing Buffalo soldiers top drums. <laughs> I prepared my favourite Buffalo soldiers. <laughs> Tomorrow. Freddie comes up with I mean, literally, (laughs) I think you're wise to let Bowie do the lyrics. Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.